Well, good morning. Is, uh, is the mic working? It is working. Okay. Awesome. Great. Um, I am I'm excited to be able to share with you all this morning. Uh, our text is going to be Matthew 10, 24 through 33. We're going to end up reading just, uh, just the end of the chapter, the 42, but um, our main text is going to be uh, 24 through 33. So you can turn to Matthew 10. And um, this morning, I would like to, us to look at a passage of Scripture that I'm not quite sure if we really know how to um, enter into um, with our own lives. Uh, I think when we read something like this, it, Jesus is speaking somewhat futuristically, and yet to us, we somewhat feel caught in between um, something that maybe already kind of happened, and maybe something that will happen, but where does that put us? And I think when we read Scripture, we always need to, to find ourselves in Scripture. We need to try to determine how does this apply to our lives. And so I'm going to try to do that this morning, and um, I'm... It's, it's a passage, I think, that will be familiar with us, but it's the one part we're going to focus on a little bit more than the rest of it this morning is um, this concept of, of confessing Jesus before other people or denying him before other people. And uh, is that, so we're going, to get, we're going to get to that. Again, our text is Matthew 10, 24, uh, through the rest of the chapter, which is 42, but we're going to focus on 24 through 33. So I'm going to go ahead and read this. Uh, you can follow along. Uh, It's starting with uh, verse 24. This is Jesus speaking. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Behezable, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. 
And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. All right, so that's the text that we're going to be dealing with this morning. Um, And again, we're going to spend most of our time in, in verses 24 through 33. But I wanted to read to the end of the chapter just to give us a good context of what Jesus is trying to impress upon his disciples. Um, Because although I think this uh, is not an unfamiliar passage, I do think that we may struggle, like I said in the beginning, to truly find ourselves in it. You know, maybe it feels a little futuristic or something that we are on the cusp of having to reckon with, um, but maybe not quite yet. Or maybe we think, I'm glad the world isn't the way that it used to be, the world this passage represents. And so we see Jesus disclosing to disciples the road that will lay before them. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, this is what the world that you're going to encounter. This is what's going to happen to you as you go out. Um, What they could expect as disciples and as followers of Jesus, right? It's also what is expected of us today as disciples and followers. And so Jesus doesn't, he doesn't mince words, does he? He doesn't sugarcoat it. what's going to happen. He starts off, he says, you know, it is enough that the disciple become like his teacher. You know, he is calling his disciples to become like him. So that's our first challenge. Like, we, we are called to become like Christ. But that also entails encountering the same criticisms and rejection and disdain that Jesus did. Okay? Uh, he says, if they hated me and called me evil, how much more will they hate you and think evil of you? These are things that we need to, to be willing to encounter for the cost of Christ. And he's telling his disciples uh, this. It's interesting here how you, if you look at who were the people that hated Jesus the most? It wasn't really those that didn't believe in a God. It wasn't those that were atheistic, per se. A lot of those were the religious rulers of the time. The people that thought they had it figured out. And so, we are called also not, not just to say, I believe in God, that's what I'm telling you, so now I'm representing Jesus. I'm also representing the God that Jesus represented, which is not the God that everybody sees. It's not the God that everybody worships. Okay? And so, for us, we can easily be caught up in this, this concept where, well, as long as I tell people that I believe in God, and they say they believe in God, then we've like done our little thing there, where we've acknowledged that God exists. But I think you've come to realize in your own life that somebody can say they believe in God and, and you can say you believe in God, but thing, things don't just quite line up. And, and that's where the tension, I think, comes in. That's where you can have some of these, this hatred, and this, this angst that can come in. Um, I think we can encounter that more from people who claim to be religious than maybe those that are just say, well, I'm agnostic or I don't, I don't know. Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. He continues on, he says, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Okay, so Jesus says two things here, and I think what he's, he's uh, fleshing out for them is how many times did Jesus tell, his, tell a parable, but then he explained it to his disciples? Or how many times did he heal somebody and he says, but keep that quiet, right? 
Jesus is now saying here, the time, the time for this is over. The time for things being, being kept secret is over. What, you have, what I have whispered in your ears, I want you to proclaim upon the housetops. So he says that everything that is hidden will ultimately be revealed, and that his disciples need to proclaim the hidden things of God upon the rooftop. So I, I want to spin this back a little bit for us. Um, what Jesus is also saying here is, what we think we are doing in the quiet will be revealed loudly in the day of judgment. All right, what we think we are doing in the quiet will be revealed. All things will be revealed. We can think of this as, as like, uh, like little sins, whatever that, whatever that even means, as insignificant and of no harm. Okay? And we can think that giving a cup of cold water to the least of these is insignificant as well. And so we don't end up doing that, and we don't end up, you know, cutting off these little sins um, because they're kind of insignificant. But in both cases, both attitudes, we deny the polity and the reality of what it truly means to follow our Savior, and therefore we deny Christ. And you see, we tend to get it completely backwards. We may think that I can be silent, and then I, and who I truly am won't be revealed, we don't realize that we are actually proclaiming from the rooftops who we are. And so my, question, my first question this morning is, um, what is your life proclaiming from the rooftops? What is my life proclaiming from the rooftops that people see? The words that I say, the actions that I, um, that I do, the things that I say are not a big deal. That which is whispered, spoken in secret will be revealed. Our lives are all yelling something. Who is proclaimed as king from the top of your roof? Do people see us as Christ-centered, or do they see us as me-centered or something else? What is your life proclaiming from the rooftops? What is my life proclaiming from the rooftops? Is it the things that Jesus whispered in his disciples' ears that we now know because they refuse to be silent? I mean, th think about that. What we know, the scripture that we have that they wrote down, the tradition that's passed on, was because people refused to be silent. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the things of the kingdom of heaven. You see, we who have professed faith and allegiance to Jesus, we have been baptized into his death and resurrection, are no longer our own. And I think we would all, we would all say that. We are disciples, as it were, sent out into the world. You know, we may not have a specific country that we have been sent to, all right? but we have people, human beings, created in the image of God that we are called to reveal Christ to. We are not just on the sidelines waiting to get checked in. Uh, our lives are revealing something. Uh, something is being proclaimed from the rooftop. Are we proclaiming Jesus? And this revealing is done by more than just words. And I think that's, that's the important part here, is we can get hung up on words a lot of times. Words are important, but if they're not bathed in the love of Christ, then we become nothing and even worse, a noisy annoyance, as Paul says. And I don't know who was here in a study on love that I did. I don't know how long this was. This maybe five, six, seven years ago, where I... Um, my brother, Butch, was visiting. Were you here for that? Who here remembers that? 
Y'all remember that? But I was, I, was, I was talking about love up here and how, and how just think of like these nice, pleasant, thoughtful, peaceful things. And everybody was just quiet. And then he hammered two symbols in the back back here. And I watched people just levitate for a second. And it was more aggressive than I thought it was going to be. But is the concept of we can, we can have, you know, the, the best words, the best actions, whatever we want to say. It can come across like that to people if we do not do it in a way that demonstrates Christ's love. And uh, I, 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 specifically, I remember, I, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that one. Um, my, man, my man click right there. Um, anyway, but we are, we are called to, we are called to use words and our actions in a way that demonstrates the love of Jesus and the truth of Jesus. And why is this? Why do we become a useless or noisy thing if we don't do it with love? Because when we allow our impatientness, our meanness, our enviousness, our pridefulness, our desire to dishonor others, our selfishness, our short fuse, our eye for an eyeness. I'm making up words here for Red, but you get it. To be mixed up in the way we speak and demonstrate Christ to others as disciples of Him, then we have removed love from our words and actions and have therefore removed what made these statements true, which is Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Like when we remove Christ from these things, then they. They lose, they lose their meaning. They lose their force. They may be like true as a concept, but Christ has been removed from them. Matthew 15, 8, um, Jesus says this, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. If we proclaim Christ with our lips from the rooftops of our lives, but have hearts that are not reflective of this, have hearts that are selfish, cold, prideful, belittling, etc., Will we not rightly be rejected? And that's, that's the point that I'm getting at here. Right? Would somebody not rightly say, this doesn't make sense? Do you, you understand what I'm saying? Like we can, people, can, people can reject us because we are mixing Christ with all this stuff that is not Christ. Okay? So the, the next question I have is, do the people in my life if we have people in our life that reject us, do the people in my life reject me because of Christ, or do they reject Christ because of me? Do the people in my life reject me because of Christ, or do they reject Christ because of me? Let us strive to be people whose hearts are not far from God. We are ambassadors, not just of the truth revealed by Christ, but of Christ himself. We're not just um, revealing, taking to the world the truth of Christ. We have to take Christ himself. And that is not just like a, a mental assent to something. It's not just a statement that we say, this is what it means to be a Christian. It's also like, Christ is what it means to be a Christian. I hope that's, I hope that's making sense. So what is your life proclaiming from the rooftops? That was that question we originally asked. And so in telling his disciples, of which we can take his words to heart as well, because we are disciples, that what he desires them to do, what they need to do, he gives words of comfort and assurance. Okay, and this is where he has three do not fears. 
that he brings up. We've already dealt with the first one. Um, Jesus tells his disciples and us to live boldly for his cause, and he explains to them how the world will treat them. And so Jesus, knowing the human heart, he makes three statements telling his disciples not to fear. The first one was, therefore, do not fear, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. We looked at that one. The second one, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then the third one, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And I want to just jump to that last one there. We'll get, we'll get to the middle one in a second. But he says uh, this because he knows his disciples and he understands humanity. So he understands us, okay? How we have things that we are afraid of. Do you have things that you're afraid of? A couple nods. Gabe swallowed, so that's... Um, He knows the things that we're afraid of. He knows how fears can paralyze and cripple us. How anxiety is real and something his followers will wrestle with. Okay? Um, I think sometimes we don't fully enter into the conversation of the do not fear statements in Scripture. It can almost seem like it's just kind of being like offhanded. Just like, do not fear. Um, They can almost seem so matter of fact uh, we can almost, like, you know, as the disciples, we can almost reply, like, do not fear. This is my, my thing here. Um, hmm. I never thought about that before. I'll change from now on. As if that's, like, just a statement that can just say, oh, that changes everything. Do not fear. Okay, I'm good. How long do you think until Mary's blood pressure went down after she was told not to fear by the angel? Do you think the disciples immediately said, you know, Jesus, this whole world hating us had us all fearful, but now that you told us not to fear, it's, it's all good. The statement itself, in itself, doesn't really change anything. It's the trust that we have in the person who makes the statement that can slowly change us and allow us to conquer our fears. And so you think about when there's like a, when there's a small child that's scared of, let's say, a dog. And you know the dog is the nicest dog in the world. The dog's like timber. And the dog's like not going to do anything. But they're like so scared. And you tell the child, you don't have to be scared. How many times do you see that just like, oh, that changes everything? No, but, but if the child trusts you, then the, tri- then the child will take your hand and slowly reach out you know, and then as soon as the dog does this, they jump back and they're all scared. But they trust you. The statement means something. But it's a, but it's a process. Fear and, and anxiety aren't choices, but choosing to trust is. And just like the little child is still scared, they are more times than not able to overcome their crippling fear by their trust until eventually they are no longer fearful. You know, Jesus understands the secrets of our hearts. He understands the fears that we have. Every single one of us, he understands. 
uh, our fears. Our fears are not a surprise to him. We fear because in some way we still don't or we can't yet fully trust the love that our Father has for us. And this is not a condemnation, but a reality of what it means to continue to grow in love and trust and understanding of our Father. You know, perfect love does what? It casts out fear. It casts out fear. In the words of John Christossom, who was an uh, early church father, he said, speaking, uh, co- commenting on this passage, he's, he wrote this, If God both knows all things that happen to us, and is able to save us and willing to do so, then whatever we may be suffering, we need not think that God has forsaken us in our suffering. For it is not God's will to keep us wholly separated from that which elicits dread, but rather to persuade us not to make an idol out of whatever we dread. Does that make make sense? It is this more than anything else that constitutes deliverance from dread. I'm going to read that one part again. For it is not God's will to keep us wholly separated from that which elicits dread. It's not His will to remove us, just remove us from what we're scared of, okay? But rather to persuade us not to make an idol out of whatever we dread. Okay? So, we, we could tend to think that if God loves us and if God cares about us, and He truly cares, then He would just get rid of whatever we're scared of. He would just, whatever. But, but no... It's, it's God's will to persuade us that because of Him, we do not need to be held captive or by that fear or make an idol out of that in a way that we now are like, the way we live our life with respect to this rather than God. Deliverance from dread is not removing the things that we are afraid of from our lives, but living in freedom from being held captive by them. And so we have the three do not fear statements and... Uh, we're going to look at the, the third one there, where he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. Okay, so honest time here. How many people have read this and are kind of like, you sparrows, like, that's where you went? Is that, is that, I mean, that's supposed to make me feel better? Nobody? Is this me? Me and Benita. That's it, okay. Well, I figured somebody else was out there with me. It's always struck me as a little weird. Um, and I, I try to dig into it. Um, and, and Jesus speaks of his care for us by talking about sparrows. And we all know the song, right? His eyes on the sparrow. That, that song. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, he asks. He picks an animal that is by human standards, at least in that day, quite literally worthless. Quite literally worthless. Because that is how we as humans assign value to things, isn't it? How much does it cost? Oh, that's cheap. We say things like, oh, that's cheap. Oh, that's worthless. A dime a dozen, or cheap labor, etc. like that. That should challenge us. Of course, that's not how God assigns value. And he says, not one of these sparrows falls to the ground outside the watchful eye of your father. So Jesus is saying that what we find as worthless and have an apathetic attitude towards, God cares about. It's one thing to say that God is able to see every sparrow that falls, that he's capable of this. But Jesus says, not only is he capable, not only does he see that, but that he cares, he cares about them, that they have value. It's only through understanding this that we can be comforted and emboldened when he says, 
So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Like, if I care about the sparrows that you find worthless, if, if, if one of them, you know, the whole thing, like, if a tree falls in the forest, doesn't make a sound if nobody's there, that whole deal. Well, Basilis is saying that, hey, it makes a sound, if you want to go that analogy, because God's there, because God sees, because God sees a sparrow that falls in the middle of the wilderness that we know nothing about. And if God cares about the sparrow, how much more does he care about you? You are worth more than many sparrows. There are times I think we can live our lives where fear takes over, where we know God cares and God loves us, but maybe he feels somewhat distant, and maybe he's not quite looking into our life or engaging in our life, or maybe he's not quite there. Um, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And if we are more valuable than many sparrows, and God still cares for them and watches over them, how much more can we be assured that our Heavenly Father is watching over us and that his love and care for us is great. Because we are not simply an animal that he created, we are his sons and daughters. And so Jesus says to them, do not fear that you have slipped from the sight of God and have been forsaken. Your father who sees all and values all his creation loves you more than all. So take heart. Well, I want to jump back to the uh, the second, do not fear, because I think it goes really well with the way that we have typically understood this passage. Um, I'm not saying we, we necessarily should understand it this way, but I think it, it will flow well with the way we understand this passage and then the warning that comes after that. Uh, and I'm going to read them both together, because I think in our minds we read them together. It says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then I think typically we intuitively go right to the next part. We skip the sparrow part. It seems kind of weird that it's in there. And then we go right to the, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And so I want to just take some moments to speak to this. Um, I think there are a few things most Christians are more sure of than the importance of not denying our faith. Indeed, it could be said that sometimes it's hard almost to differentiate between the love a Christian has for God in that moment and the very fear of the same God that he might have if he fails him. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So we could get to the point where it's like, if, if I was going to be tortured for my faith, I would want to be true to God because of my love for God, but then there's also a part of me that says, but what would God do to me if I were to fail him? There's like we, we, it's like a catch-22 kind of situation that I think we, we enact upon this passage. Um, perhaps you know, we can think of many examples of this. Perhaps the example that might come to your mind is the story of Cassie Bernal. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Um, who was one of the victims tragically killed during the Columbine shooting. All right, in a book, She Said Yes, uh, was written, uh, that reported to reveal her final moments, um, and it became popular. Many of you may have read it or be familiar with it, but it was this concept of uh, the shooter uh, allegedly asked her, do you believe in God? And she said yes, and then, as the story goes, um, she was killed. And since many of us We'll probably never encounter a situation like this. We may, but we probably won't. 
we can easily be tempted, and, and I use that word deliberately, we can be tempted to believe this scripture only applies to a select few who must decide between those who kill the body and him who can destroy the soul. We think we know what this passage is saying, that it implies some Christians will be persecuted and killed for their faith. And the fear and risk of this may cause some of Jesus' disciples to deny him. We tell ourselves that although persecution may indeed appear at some point in our lives, depending how you read the Revelation leaves there, uh, we are glad that it has not come yet. We are glad that we don't live in this world that Jesus is speaking of, and so we breathe a sigh of relief and continue on, glad that this passage does not judge our lives. And maybe, that, maybe that's not how you see this, but um, I think too many times in my life, that's kind of how I would look, look at this. It's a passage that was written, but thank God it doesn't apply to me. Um, we may even have thought about what we might do or say if we were ever unfortunate to be in such a situation. We may have heard stories from places that encourage us, like the Martyr's Mirror, books like that. Um, we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego staring down the barrel of an overheated furnace. We think of many others, except ourselves, for we have written ourselves out of this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples, and we observe from merely the sidelines. And there's no put me in coach. We, we are very cool with being on the sidelines. And yet, do we not claim to be disciples of Jesus? Are we really immune from the ripples and reverberations of the kingdom of God invading the kingdom of this world that we are part of? And so this morning, I'd like to spend the rest of our time contemplating this concept of denying Christ and how it, it actually applies to our lives today and how we are not just removed from that because there isn't some type of mass persecution happening next door where we have to you know, make, make a statement of faith. Um, or pay the ultimate cost. What does it mean to deny Christ? What does, what does that mean? What does it mean to deny Christ? You know, we can think that it takes other people for me to deny Christ. I think that's kind of my, my first thing here. We can think it takes other people for me to deny Christ. Um, but it doesn't. It only takes me. We may think that it takes encountering other people, being coerced, being threatened, for me to run the risk of denying Christ. That if we could somehow just escape out into the wilderness, 100 miles from everybody else, uh, we would be safe. And we've seen lots of people throughout history have fled places of persecution. Um, but the only problem is that uh, too many times we're the problem. I'm the problem. You know, every time I decide to be king of my life, I'm the problem. I deny Christ. Every time I desire to walk by my own understanding and I don't trust in the Lord, I deny Him. Every time I turn after my own way, after my own selfish, sinful desires, I deny Him. You know, the fallacy, I believe, is that we think we can't deny Jesus if we keep our mouth shut. We may think things like, I hope I'm never put in a situation where I would have the chance to deny Christ. And yet, somehow, we don't realize that every day is full of these situations. Every day. Every day that we live is full of these situations. And somehow, we've decided that unless it comes down to the ultimate cost, then, then it doesn't, like actually, doesn't actually count. Um, 
if Jesus told his disciples to not even fear those who can kill us, um, let me back up. Um, he says, do not fear those who kill. Um, and what I'm saying this morning is rather than that statement getting us off the hook because we say, I don't have people in my life right now that want to kill, so this doesn't apply to me. The point I'm making this morning is the severity of this statement, I think, condemns us for how often do our words and actions reveal that we fear way less than people that would kill. Does that make sense? Do not fear these people, and yet the way we live our lives implies that we fear a lot less than that. We, we deny Christ for way less than people that are saying, I will kill you unless you deny Christ. If Jesus told his disciples to not even fear those who can kill us, what is our excuse for fearing those who hurt our feelings, those who judge us, or even those who look at us funny, don't want to be friends with us anymore? If we are not to fear the loss of life, how can we then fear the loss of a job, the loss of a friend, the loss of status, respect, financial stability, etc.? You know, if we look at the statement as, do not fear men, even those who can kill, I believe we have a better understanding of the full grasp of what Jesus' command is. See, a lot of times we can just break it down to, don't fear those that will kill you, but the rest of the people, whatever. And I don't think that's what he was saying. Don't, don't, even those that could kill you, do not fear them. Don't let them determine how you live your life. And so it's almost as if Jesus is telling his disciples not to let fear run their lives. But, and Jesus does this where he does this kind of rhetoric thing a lot throughout scriptures. He says, basically, if you're going to live your life based off of fear, well, at least fear correctly. I mean, why fear the ones who can only kill the body when it's God that can actually destroy you? Um, and that, that is referring to when it says the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That is referring to God. So what does your my life reveal that we fear then? That's the question I think we need to ask. Like our, li our lives are revealing things. They're saying, like, they're revealing what are the fears in my life? What are my priorities? What are things that I make decisions based off of? Is it the fear of man? What does your life reveal about what you fear? But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. You know, and, and this warning seems very, very ominous, and it, and it should be. Um, but I do want to make a point that it's no more... Um, condemning or um, serious than other warnings Jesus says, such as, if you do not forgive others, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Or, whoever didn't feed the least of these didn't feed me. Depart from me, I never knew you. Or, if any man puts his hand to the plow and looks back, he is unfit for the kingdom. In fact, we all can, whether we want to admit it or not, identify more with Lot's wife than Lot himself, probably. That's the whole looking back. With the okay. Yeah, we got it. Okay. Um, and if not, if we can't identify there, at least with the disciples who all denied him by action and fled. Or like Peter, whose allegiance to Christ was 
stronger than the others. But what did that do for him? Well, that ultimately got him in a spot where he actually denied him with words. You know, the others, the others fled. Well, Peter, he, he didn't quite flee. Um, scripture says that all the disciples fell away. Why did, they, why did they fall away? Because they feared man more than the one standing before them who actually would have been able to bring their souls to ruin. They didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Their actions showed what they really believed. They all said that they wouldn't leave him, and they all did. If you deny me before men, this is what Jesus said. We are well aware that Peter denied Jesus before men with words and swearing three times. It's kind of hard to wiggle out of that one. He said, I don't know the man, and we all gasp. Yet, let the one without sin cast the first stone. Let us take stock and inventory of our own lives. And so, like Peter, in what ways do I tell people I don't know Jesus? In either words or deeds. That I don't know the crucified and risen Jesus. The Jesus who is the king and love of my life. In what ways does my life tell people I don't know Jesus? And I think that's something we need to ask ourselves. Think about that for a second. Just because we talk about Jesus doesn't mean we are talking about Jesus. Just because, we, because people think we are behaving like Jesus doesn't mean um, that we are. We can deny him before men when these same men think that we are honoring him. And, and so what do I mean by this? And that's something that I kind of said in the beginning. We can deny Jesus before men when these same men think we are honoring him. I think there are times when we are very comfortable with the fact that we live in a Judeo-Christian society where this concept of like believing in God is a good thing. I believe in the man upstairs. I believe this. I believe that. Yet we know very clearly that the Jesus we are called to represent, if we live and act that way, will create friction, especially with people who claim to know God. And so we can deny him before men when those same men think we are honoring him. Like we can, we can be quiet when we, they're like, yeah, that's what, a good, that's what believing in God looks like. And, and it's actually not. And we should say something. This is something that we will all face um, because of the society we live in. Sometimes we are most tempted to deny Jesus when we are around others who believe they are following him. And so... Let us not think that we need the fear of death or a governmental decree issued before we run the risk of denying Christ. And that's the main part I wanted to, to bring out of this passage here. Is we can say, I hope I never, I know, hope I never encounter a situation where I have to make the decision of whether to deny Christ or not. And what I'm trying to say is, like, we do this every day. It, it, it may not be with somebody that has a gun to your head, but every day we encounter situations, we make decisions and choices where we choose to follow Christ or we choose to follow our own way. Matthew 16, 24 says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must deny himself. Too many times we are faced with decisions where we must either deny ourselves or we deny Christ. So it's, it's one or the other. The tragedy is that we convince ourselves that there is some middle ground, some place where we don't completely have to deny ourselves, and yet we feel we aren't completely denying Christ either. So we kind of walk this little, this little path. 
And so we go through life not fully alive and not fully dead. And I think popular culture has some modern terms for that. I think Jesus called it lukewarm. Do you claim Jesus as your Lord and Master? You know, the times we fail Jesus, we deny Him. We deny the allegiance that we have promised Him. We deny our belief in His kingdom. We deny His authority in our lives. And so, well, our time is gone. Um, Let me wrap this up. Uh, To summarize, what does it mean to deny Christ? What am I saying it means to deny Christ? Well, it's living my life in a way that rejects his authority in my life and living in a way that is not congruent with the way that he lived his. Living my life in a way that rejects his authority in my life and living in a way that is not congruent with the way he lived his. Living and relying on the strength of my life, which leads to death, instead of living in the strength of his death, which leads to life. He who wants to save his soul will lose it, and he who loses his soul will find it. Denying Christ as king of my life through my words, actions, deeds, etc. And so we can indeed deny Christ before men with our words. I'm not saying, I'm not saying we can't do that, because we can. The exact situation that, that Jesus is referring to here does happen. It happens over the world. Um, we can in, in, indeed deny Christ before men with our words, but let us not be fooled into thinking that we cannot deny him before men with our silence. Our words are not the only way that we can deny Christ. We can deny him by our actions and inactions. You know, I think too many times we think that I'm only denying Jesus by words. And so if I pick my words carefully, I'm not denying him. Yes, Peter used his words, but the other disciples used their absence. We must choose life, for as Peter, on behalf of the disciples, replied when, Jesus, when asked by Jesus, are you going to leave as well? What did Peter say? He said, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. The words and ways of Jesus are life. And every time we choose to go against them, to not follow, to not believe, to not obey, in some, in some sense, we choose death. I don't mean to be overly harsh, but I want to impress on all of us that the choices we make, the words we speak or don't speak, the actions or inactions that we choose to make are not insignificant. The kingdom of God matters. Your role in that kingdom matters. So when we see this verse, let us not live anxiously in fear of a test that we hope we never have to take. I don't want us to see this as like, man, I hope that I never have to like encounter that. Rather, let us realize that it is a verse that calls us to take stock of our lives, and we read it in a way that is applicable to us. And what should our reaction be when we realize that we have fallen short? Well, it's not to convince ourselves that it's a trivial thing and not grasp the gravity of it, but our reaction also should not be one of despair. It should be one of pressing on, understanding that each day is new, just as our Lord's mercies are. It is the prayer of the publican and the saint. It is the prayer of the church. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And if we, as followers of Christ, 
claim him as our Lord, then let us be faithful and true and loyal to the pledge that we have made to him, following in his footsteps. I want to close with John, 1 John 2, 3-6, through 6, which says this, By this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought also ought himself also to walk just as he walked. To walk just as he walked. So let us walk just as he walked. And may God empower us towards that end. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we are yours. We surrender our lives to you. Help us to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling that you have placed on us, worthy of the sons and daughters you have made us to be. When for the fear of men or selfishness or pride, we have denied you, we ask for your forgiveness. And we look at this world and within ourselves and confess that there is nowhere else for us to go. For you and you alone have the words of life. For you alone are life. Empower us to proclaim what you have done in the silence of our hearts from the rooftops. In Jesus' name, amen.